Well, let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll get right into our study. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege of being here at Heartland for this uh, weekend revival. We ask, Father, for the presence of your Holy Spirit, that you will enlighten us, and not only enlighten us, but that you will empower us to see that you have a very important function for us in this world. Help us, Lord, to discern what your will is for us. We thank you for the privilege of prayer. We ask that you will hear this prayer and you will answer, not because we have any merit to offer, but because we come boldly in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. I'd like to begin this evening by reading from the book of Isaiah, chapter 46 and verses 9 through 11. So I would encourage you, if you have your Bibles, to... Uh, look up Isaiah 46, verses 9 through 11. Uh, you know, people ask me whether I use audiovisual aids, and I say, yes, I do use audiovisual aids. Audio because people can hear me, and visual because they can read it in the Bible. Amen. So let's open our Bibles, Amen. and let's look up Isaiah 46, 9 through 11, which is going to set the tone for everything that I want to share here this weekend. This uh, passage describes what distinguishes God from all false pretenders. You know, some people say, well, it's the fact that God is the creator, and that's true. But there's something else that distinguishes God from every other false pretender, and that is mentioned in these verses. It reads as follows. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Now the question is, why? Here's the answer. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my Good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel. Speaking about Cyrus. From a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. So God knows the end from the beginning. And therefore, God guides events of human history to fulfill his will, and it will be done. Now God's ability to forecast the future and to guide world events is illustrated in the Messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. And we're going to focus primarily in our study this evening on the Messianic prophecies of the Old Testament as an illustration of God seeing the end from the beginning and guiding events so that what God has determined will take place. So go with me to Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. We're going to read a lot of scripture this evening. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. God had a specific date for the birth of Christ. He did not reveal that date to us. It was not December 25. 
But God did have on his calendar a specific date when Jesus would be born in this world. And here in Galatians 4 verse 4 we have this made clear. It says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. When the fullness of time had come. When the moment reached on God's calendar, the Messiah was born. You might wonder about that expression, fullness of the time. Does that mean a specific date? Yes, it does, because there's another verse that uses almost an identical expression, and it refers to a specific time prophecy that was fulfilled right on time. Notice Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Jesus has just been baptized. He has just begun his ministry, and notice what we are told about what Jesus said as he begins his ministry. It says in verse 14, Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled. Does that sound similar to Galatians 4 verse 4? The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What time was Jesus referring to when he says at the beginning of his ministry, the time is fulfilled? Ellen White makes it clear in Desire of Ages that it was referring to the prophecy of the 70 weeks, that at the beginning of the last week, Messiah would appear. So when the Bible says, when the fullness of time had come, it means that God had a specific date in mind for the incarnation and the birth of Jesus Christ. I'd like to read a statement from Desire of Ages, page 31 and 32, where Ellen White describes the precise moment when the Messiah would be born and how, from a human perspective, it appeared to be delayed. You know, some things appear to be delayed in our minds, but not in the mind of God. Listen to what she wrote. The Savior's coming was foretold in Eden. When Adam and Eve first heard the promise, they looked for its speedy fulfillment. What promise? The promise of the coming seed, right? She continues, They joyfully welcomed the firstborn son, hoping that he might be the deliverer. But the fulfillment of the promise tarried. Tarried for whom? Not for God. God has a calendar of events. And God knew that it wasn't time yet. But the fulfillment of the promise tarried. Those who first received it died without the sight. From the days of Enoch, the promise was repeated through patriarchs and prophets, keeping alive the hope of his appearing. And yet, he came not. The prophecy of Daniel revealed the time of his advent, but not all rightly interpreted the passage. Century after century passed away. The voices of the prophets ceased. The hand of the oppressor was heavy upon Israel. And many were ready to exclaim, The days are prolonged, and every vision faileth. Now comes the key portion of the statement. But 
like the stars in the vast circuit of their appointed path, God's purposes know no haste and no delay. So from a human perspective the promise tarried, but not from the perspective of God, because God has a calendar of event. In fact, every event of the life of Christ was carefully choreographed in the ceaseless ages of eternity past. Before his incarnation, Jesus sat down with the Father, and they mapped out in advance every single event of the ministry of Christ. The exact time of his birth, baptism, death, burial, resurrection, priesthood, and judgment were contemplated in specific prophecies of the Old Testament. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 5 and verse 30, I came of myself, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. So everything that Jesus did had already been pre-planned in eternity past, even before sin entered the universe, not only as to event, but also as to specific timing. You know, one of the most fascinating competitions in the Winter Olympics is the figure skating. I can't help but admire how the figure skaters twist and turn and gyrate and jump so perfectly and so precisely. Why do they skate so flawlessly? The answer is that each twist, each turn, each jump was carefully planned and practiced long before the competition began. Each and every movement of Jesus, likewise, was planned by his Father in the ages of eternity. Before Jesus came to this earth, he and his Father sat down and went over every specific detail. During his earthly sojourn, Jesus was in intimate communion with his Father through prayer, through Bible study, through the providential acts of his ministry, and through nature. Jesus, day by day, was able to discern the will of the Father for him at that precise moment. You see, before Jesus came to this earth, the entire plan was before him. But when Jesus came to this earth, he only knew what the plan was from day to day as the Father revealed the plan to him. We can see an example of this in the story of the man who was born blind. Go with me to John chapter 9 and verse 2. John chapter 9 and verse 2. Here we find the following words. The disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? The answer of Jesus is very interesting. Neither this man, verse 3, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. The impression that we get from this is that this had already been pre-planned. In other words, this blind man was there 
for this precise moment to have this encounter with Jesus Christ. Now I'm sure that you're aware that many times during the ministry of Jesus, Jesus said that his hour had not yet come. You remember that? He said, my time has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Let's notice several examples of that. By the way, all of them are in the Gospel of John. Go with me to John chapter 2 and verse 4. John chapter 2 and verse 4. Here Jesus is at the wedding feast in Cana. And of course they run out of the wine. And so the mother of Jesus comes and says, They have no wine. And notice what Jesus answers to his mother. Jesus said to her, Woman. Now that wasn't disrespectful. You know, children... Uh, addressed their mother and their father that way in biblical times. Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Interesting. My hour has not yet come. What was Jesus referring to when he said that? Let's notice a few other examples. John chapter 7 verse 6 and then we'll read verse 8. The context is that the unbelieving brothers of Jesus sons of Joseph from a previous marriage, are trying to encourage Jesus to go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And Jesus answers them, and I'm going to read first of all verse 6, Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. And then verse 8, He says to his brothers, You go up to this feast, I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. Notice John chapter 7 verse 30. Here Jesus is, uh, says something that really shakes up the Jews that are listening. He says, my father has sent me into the world. Well, what Jesus said was, uh, went over like a lead balloon. Notice verse, thir seven, verse 30 of chapter 7. Then they sought to take him. They wanted to arrest him. In fact, during his ministry they wanted to kill him on multiple occasions. Then they sought to take him. But no one laid a hand on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. Let's go to John chapter 8 and verse 20. John chapter 8 and verse 20. Here we find Jesus saying to the Jews of his age, you don't know the Father and you don't know me either. They didn't like that. And so it says in John chapter 8 and verse 20, these words Jesus spoke in the treasury and he taught in the temple and no one laid hands on him for his hour had not yet come. So you find multiple times where it says the time hadn't come, the hour of Jesus had not come. What did Jesus mean? Well, let's go to another place in the Gospel of John, chapter 11. John chapter 11. And uh, let's read several verses there. This is referring to the resurrection of Lazarus. The experience at the grave of Lazarus. And so, let's begin our reading at uh, verse 5. John 11 verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. 
Jesus what? He loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Now, if he really loved them, what do you suppose he would do when he heard that Lazarus was gravely ill? He would have said to his disciples, hey, let's pack up and let's go to Bethany. But the next verse seems to be pretty calloused because it says in verse 7, uh, in verse 6, now when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. <laughs> the disciples, you know, they're puzzled. Zyrages says that they don't understand what's going on. He loves Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and instead of going to where Lazarus is to heal him, he says, let's hang out for another couple of days. What's going on here? But then Jesus says something that really shakes them up. Notice verse 7. Then after this, that is after the two days, by the way, it would have taken one day for the messenger to go from Bethany to where Jesus was, if you look at the geography. And then Jesus remained two days, and then it would have taken Jesus one more day to arrive in Bethany. That's the four days that Lazarus was in the grave. So Lazarus died shortly after the messenger left. And so notice verse 7. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. Wow. And they object. Notice what we find in verse 8. Then the disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and you are going there again? And if you read John chapter 8, verses 58 and 59, Jesus had said, before Abraham was I am, they picked up stones to stone him. And in John chapter 10, the previous chapter, you know, Jesus said, I am the father I won, and then they picked up stones to stone him again. So the disciples are saying, now wait a minute, let's not go to Judea, they tried to kill you there. And then Jesus says something very interesting. And I struggled with this for, for a while until I read what Ellen White had to say in Desire of Ages. Notice what we find in verse 9. What Jesus says appears to be totally disconnected with what is going on. Verse 9, Jesus answered, are, not, are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, as Jesus was doing, he does not stumble, better translation, he does not fall, because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. So what did Jesus mean when he said, there are there not 12 hours in the day? What Jesus is doing, he's comparing the time of his earthly ministry with a 12-hour day. Day number one, by the way, symbolically, not literally, hour number one of his day is when he began his ministry. And hour number 12 is when he died on the cross. Are you following me or not? So basically, Jesus, Jesus is talking about his entire ministry as a 12-hour day. Hour number one is when he began his ministry. Hour number 12 is when Jesus dies on the cross. So why did Jesus say, are there not 12 hours in the day? Jesus was simply saying, you know, my 12th hour isn't here yet. So as long as I walk in the Father's path, 
as long as I follow his will, as long as I follow the, the calendar of events that has been determined that the Father reveals to me, they cannot touch me. They can't do anything to me. I'm secure. Are you understanding what I'm saying now? Now there's a similar verse to this one. In the story of the man who was born blind, let's go back to John chapter 9 and verse 3 and we'll read verse 4. Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. And then Jesus says this, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. What did Jesus mean by when he said that? I have to work the works of the Father while it's what? what? Day. In other words, while my ministry is transpiring. Right? But then he says, the night is coming when no one can work. That's why Jesus on the cross, what did Jesus say on the cross? It is what? It is finished. I don't need to do any more work in terms of provision to save human beings. It is finished. So what Jesus is saying, I have to continue working while it's my day. But the night is coming, the moment when the hour arrives, when I'm going to suffer and die, when I will no longer be able to work. Now let's go back to this idea of where Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. Do you know that at the very end of his ministry, Jesus changes his tune. Now he says, the hour has come. Let's notice several examples. John chapter 12, verse 23, and then verse 27. John 12, 23, and 27. The context is that some Greeks come and they talk to Philip, and Philip talks to Andrew, and uh, they say to Jesus, some Greeks are here that want, to, that want to talk to you. And Jesus says something very interesting. By the way, this is in the last week of the life of Christ before his death on the cross. But Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come. Is that a change from what we read before? The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Notice verse 27. Jesus is speaking, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. He was referring to his suffering in Gethsemane and his death on the cross. Notice John chapter 13 verse 1. Here Jesus is gathered with his disciples in the upper room. You know, there's going to be the foot washing and the establishment of communion. And uh, we find this explanation in John 13 verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that what? That his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So Jesus now knows, as he's in the upper room, that his hour has come. And even on the way to Gethsemane, when Jesus prayed that wonderful prayer in John chapter 17, we find Jesus saying that the hour has come. Notice John 17 and verse 1. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son also may glorify you. 
So at the, in the last week of his ministry, Jesus says, the hour has come. Before that, he says, the hour has not come. So his 12 hours day, hour, uh, day is the period of his ministry, from beginning to end of his ministry. And now it was hour number 12. Now I want to read a remarkable statement. You know, I, I noticed uh, some expressions when I said that the whole ministry of Christ had been choreographed before Jesus came to this world, even as to date and as to, and as to time and as to event. You know, I, I saw a couple of eyebrows kind of go up, kind of like, hmm, sounds like predestination. Well, let's see what, that, what the Lord's prophet has to say. Desire of Ages, page 147. This is a powerful statement. She's going to explain what the expression mine hour has not yet come means. The words, I'm quoting, the words mine hour is not yet come point to the fact that every act, how many acts? The words, mine hour is not yet come, point to the fact that every act of Christ's life on earth was in fulfillment of the plan that had existed from the days of eternity. Before he came to earth, the plan lay out before him perfect in all its details. That's an amazing statement. So in heaven, when he was in heaven, he sat down with the Father, the Father said, you know, now, now you're going to be in Nazareth, then you're going to be in Gethsemane, then you're going to be, do this, you're going to do that. Everything had been mapped out. And God is not determining it, but God knows what's going to happen. You see, predestination and predetermination are two different things. God does not predetermine, but God does pre-know. The statement continues. Before he came to earth, the plan lay out before him perfect in all its details, but now notice while he was on earth, he didn't know all the plan. But as he walked among men, he was guided step by step by the Father's will. He did not hesitate to act at the appointed time. With the same submission, he waited until the time had come. Every day the Father revealed the plan that Jesus had seen fully when he was in heaven, but he did not have all the information while he was on earth. He had to depend on the will of his Father as the Father revealed his plan every day. In the book Ministry of Healing, page 479, Ellen White adds uh, some, very some very interesting comments about this particular point. She wrote, Christ in his life on earth made no plans for himself. Christ what? On earth he what? He made no plans for himself. He accepted God's plans for him. And day by day the Father unfolded his plans. That's a remarkable statement. Remember the statement because we're going to come back to it a little bit later on in our study this evening. So what does it say? In his life on earth, Jesus made no plans for himself. He didn't say, well, I'm going to go here, I'm going to go there, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. No, every day, in communion with his father, his father would reveal what the father wanted to do, him to do that day according to the plan that had been devised in the ceaseless ages of eternity. 
Now this is illustrated in the first visit of Jesus to the temple. Ellen White has a very interesting passage in Desire of Ages, page 78, where she describes Jesus arriving and observing the ceremonies and the sacrifices in the temple. You see, Jesus didn't know everything when he was a child. He had to learn every day. The Father had to reveal information to him every day. He didn't have a knowledge of the total plan like he had in heaven. Here we find a clear reference. This is how it reads. For the first time, the child looked upon the temple. He saw the white-robed priests performing their solemn ministry. He beheld, notice, notice the words that are, he looked, he beheld the bleeding victim upon the altar of sacrifice. With the worshipers he bowed in prayer, while the cloud of incense ascended before God. He witnessed the impressive rites of the Paschal service. Day by day he saw their meaning more clearly. So is everything absolutely clear? No, no, every day. It says day by day. He saw their meaning more clearly. Every act seemed to be bound up with his own life. New impulses were awakening within him. Silent and absorbed, he seemed to be studying out a great problem. The mystery of his mission was opening to the Savior. So in this example we can understand how the Father revealed his will how Jesus observed, he looked, he meditated, he bowed, and little by little he understood as the Father revealed to him what the meaning of the sacrificial system was. In fact, uh, it says the mystery of his mission was opening up to the Savior. Now let's go for a moment to when Jesus was on the cross of Calvary. You know, when Jesus, Jesus was a student of the scriptures, right? Did Jesus know the scriptures backwards and forwards? Oh yeah, he did. He said to the Jews, you know, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And yet you don't want to come to me that you, can, that you will have life. And when with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, Jesus walked with them, and it says that beginning at Moses, and all the prophets... He revealed to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus knew the scriptures backwards and forwards. In fact, Ellen White explains that he sat on his mother's knee and his mother read the scriptures to him and explained the scriptures to him. So he was a deep student of scripture. And the reason I mention this is that many things that happened while Jesus was on the cross were written in scripture, in the Old Testament scriptures. Sometimes I wonder how Jesus felt when he was on the cross. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Psalm 22 verse 1. He's saying those words that were, that were already written a thousand years before. You know, Psalm 22 verses 7 and 8 says, And those who see me ridicule me. As he's seeing those individuals at the foot of the cross ridiculing him, you know, he's probably thinking about this passage. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head, saying he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him, let him deliver him, since he delights in him. 
or when he saw the soldiers dividing his garments. Perhaps he remembered Psalm 22 verse 18 where it says, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Saying this is exactly what prophecy predicted. He probably also remembered Psalm 69 21 where it says, They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. The whole plan was being fulfilled according to the foreknowledge of God. God is not determining this. God is revealing what he already knew, the choices that would be made. He probably remembered Psalm 31 verse 5 where it says, In your hand I commit my spirit. The very words that Jesus spoke on the cross. So he's fitting in precisely and exactly with God's plan. Jesus had studied the scriptures and was conscious of every word he needed to speak and what, at what specific time he was to speak those words. And undoubtedly while he hung on the cross he observed what was happening and he said this is exactly what was predicted in prophecy. Now we've studied about Jesus, but here's the big question, what does this have to do with us? You know, we have to make an application to us. Does God have a plan for our life? Which he is willing to reveal to us day by day? Is it possible that through prayer, through Bible study, through God's providential leading in the acts of our life, and through a contemplation of nature, God can reveal his plan for us? like he did to Jesus. Let me finish now the statement that I read from Ministry of Healing. We go back to Ministry of Healing 479. I'm going to begin with a part of the statement that we already read. Christ in his life on earth made no plans for himself. He accepted God's plans for him. And day by day the Father unfolded his plans. That's Jesus. Now notice how the statement continues. So should we depend on God. What was that? So should we depend upon God that our lives may be the simple outworking of His will. As we commit our ways to Him, He will direct our steps. That is an amazing statement. And then Ellen White in the next paragraph laments what generally happens with us. She wrote, too many, in planning for a brilliant future, make an utter failure. Let God plan for you. As a little child, trust to the guidance of him who will keep the feet of his saints. And then comes this famous famous statement of Ellen White, which she uses to refer to John the Baptist, but she also uses it here. She also uses it in the story of the Samaritan woman. God never leads his children otherwise than they would choose to be led if they could see the end from the beginning and discern the glory of the purpose which they are fulfilling as co-workers with him. You see, hindsight is 20-20. 
Sometimes we don't understand what's happening in our lives. And what we do, we complain to the Lord, we say, Lord, do it my way. But when we get to the other side and we look back, we'll say, thank you Lord for doing it your way. <laughs> I didn't exactly understand what was happening while I was going through it, but now I understand that you had a plan. So what God is saying is, follow the plan, hang in there, don't ask for explanations, God will explain it someday. Meanwhile, trust. Trust in Him. You know, we have the case of individuals that decided to cooperate with God's plan, and we have examples of those who did not cooperate with God's plans. Let me mention an example that you all know well. The story of Esther. You remember that in the story of Esther, the entire Jewish nation was going to be uprooted. The king was going to commit genocide. Real genocide. Wanted to uproot the entire Jewish nation. Not so much the king, but, but Haman, who influenced the king. It appeared that the Jewish nation was going to cease to exist. The devil's ultimate purpose was to eliminate the holy line from which the Messiah would come. See, we usually don't think about that. We go, oh, you know, he hated the Jews. No, no, he hated the Messiah that would come from the Jews. That's how we had to read all of the events of history is to see that God uh, is guiding things in a way in which the Messiah ultimately can come from the Holy Line. And Satan is trying to eliminate the Holy Line. So, God had placed Esther as queen. Did God know what was going to happen? Yes. Of course. So he plants a Jewish queen in the palace. And when the death decree is given against the Jews, Mordecai sends a message to Esther. Let's read Esther 4, 13 and 14. Esther 4, 13 and 14. Then Mordecai told them to answer Esther. Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. Don't think that because you're the queen, the king is going to spare you. Verse 14. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. Listen carefully. We are all important to God, but we are not indispensable. We're important in fulfilling His plan. And God has a plan for us, but we're not indispensable. If we refuse to follow His plan, God's plan will be fulfilled. But someone else will gain the blessing. It continues saying, For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And then he says this, Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Who knows whether God has planted you in the palace for this. Did Esther choose to go before the king even at the risk of her own life? She decided to follow God's plan. And she saved the entire Jewish nation. 
by her intercession. You know, another story in the Bible that illustrates this is the story of Joseph. You know, this year, uh, Lord willing, we're going to uh, have our summit after two years where we were not able to have it in person. I would encourage everyone to consider the possibility of coming. It takes place near Yosemite National Park. Uh, it's um, wonderful food, uh, good exercise, and, you know, wonderful, comfortable rooms. Uh, it's just, it's, you know, good, good speakers. I mean, it's really worthwhile coming. It takes place the last, week, the last week of October, from Wednesday this year through the following Sabbath. And, uh, you know, I'm going to pursue this particular uh, idea of a history being written behind history in the presentations that I'm going to make there. And one of the uh, examples that I'm go going to give is the example of Joseph. You know, God had said that... Um, Israel, in the prophecy of the 400 years, he had said that Israel, Jacob, would be transplanted to Egypt. He didn't say Egypt. He didn't even identify the place by name, which is very significant. He says, they're going to be transported to a, line that, a land that's not theirs. But after 400 years, they're going to come back. The interesting thing is, how could that be fulfilled if Jacob and his family lived in Canaan? The answer is Joseph. The devil did not have the foggiest idea that by working upon the brothers of Joseph, because they hated him, because of his holy character, the devil didn't have the any idea that by transporting, by influencing his brothers to sell him to Egypt, he was fulfilling God's plan. Because as a result of Joseph going to Egypt, Jacob was transplanted to Egypt with his family, and then after the 400 years, they went back to the land. The devil didn't know it at that time, because God did not identify the name of the land where they were going to go to. Just like God did not identify when he called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, he, he didn't tell him where he was taking him. He, he left according to, to the Sabbath school lesson that we studied this week, without knowing where he was going. But God knew where he was going. And you find many examples in the Bible of this. And Joseph decided to follow God's plan. Let me ask you, do you think Joseph saw things differently um, when uh, his brothers came and bowed before him and uh, when his father was transported to Egypt? Do you think that he, he looked at uh, his past history somewhat differently? I'm sure he didn't fully understand why, even though he was a good kid, he was sold to Egypt. He didn't fully understand why he was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. By the way, the reason he ended, in, ended up in Potiphar's house is because he had to learn to be an administrator. Because he had a greater administrative task to perform. The reason why he ended up in prison was he had to meet the cupbearer. And then God gave the cupbearer amnesia for two years. It wasn't time. I'm just giving you an inkling. Come. So the story of Joseph illustrates someone who went through all sorts of problems fulfilling God's plan. Then we have the prophet Jeremiah. 
Go with me to Jeremiah 1 verses 4 through 8. Jeremiah chapter 1 verses 4 through 8. Did God have a plan for Jeremiah before he was born? Yes. Could Jeremiah have chosen to go against the plan? Of course he could have. It says there in Jeremiah verse, uh, chapter 1 and verse 4, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Behold, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. And then, of course, Jeremiah tries to get off the hook, but he doesn't. Then said I, Ah, Lord God, Behold, I cannot speak, for I am a youth. But the Lord said to me, all God's biddings are enablings. Whatever God asks us to do, he gives us the resources to do. And so it says, but the Lord said to me, don't say I am a youth. For you shall go to all to whom I send you, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. And Jeremiah said, if that's what you're going to do, I'm in. I have all kinds of illustrations in the Bible. Why do we try to go against God's will and follow our own will, our own path, which we consider to be easier? We should be people of prayer. We should study God's word. We should carefully observe the providential leading of God in our day-to-day -day life. We should go out in the midst of nature and commune with the God of nature. And as we commune with God, God will reveal to us what His plans are for us. You know, I could stand here and give you an hour testimony about how God, for example, has led secrets unsealed. It's an amazing, miraculous story, what God has done. We don't even understand it. But from the start, we decided that we would follow step by step with God's will. And I think that the greatest story of Secrets Unsealed is still to be written. We don't know what it is. You know, we went out in faith. We bought 435 acres, country land. By the way, it's a place, the specific place where Ellen White spent one month in July of 1888. Borough Valley. So, you know, we discovered that after we bought the property. <laughs> so that's a sign that God is saying, hey folks, good choice. And Ellen White says, the weather is great, the scenery is beautiful, there's a breeze all the time. We said, wow! You know, we discovered it after, after the prophet was there. So we're seeing all kinds of signs from God. Now let me share with you a sad story. A story of an individual who was called to fulfill God's plan and rejected it. This is from Seventh-day Adventist history. God called two prophets before the great disappointment of 1844 and gave them the same message that, that shortly thereafter he gave to Ellen G. White. William Foy didn't give the message much importance. And Hazen Foss was called twice by God to impart the message that God had given him in vision. 
I want to read now the description that Arthur White, the grandson of Ellen White, wrote about this experience. And I'm going to read it because I can't express it more clearly than the grandson of Ellen White. Sometime before the first vision was given to Ellen in December, that would be 1844, the Lord had given just such a vision to Hazen. He had been instructed that he was to tell others what God had revealed to him. However, he felt he had been deceived in the disappointment of 1844. He knew too that ridicule, scorn would come to those who claimed to have a vision from God. So he refused to obey the promptings of God's Spirit. Again the Lord came near him in vision. He was instructed that if he refused to bear the message of heaven, he would have to give the message to someone else, to the weakest of the weak. But Hazen still felt that he could not bear the burden and the reproach of standing before the people to present the vision from God. He told the Lord that he would not do it. Then he described that very strange feelings came over him. And a voice said, you have grieved away the Spirit of the Lord. This is letter 37, 1890. This frightened Hazen, I'm still reading from Arthur White. This frightened Hazen, horrified at his own stubbornness and rebellion, he told the Lord that he would now relate the vision. He called a meeting of Adventists for that purpose. But when the people came together, he recounted his experience, and then he tried to remember what was shown to him, but he could not call it to mind. Even with the most concentrated effort, he could not recall a word of it. He cried out in distress. He spoke this, this to Ellen White, by the way. It is gone from me. I can say nothing, and the Spirit of the Lord has left me. Those who were present described the meeting as the most terrible meeting they were ever in. And then in February of 1845, we find Hazen outside a hall where Ellen White is speaking, and he's listening outside to what Ellen White is saying. So it continues. As Hazen talked with Ellen that February morning in Portland, he told her that although he had not gone into the chapel where she had spoken the evening before, he had stood outside the door and heard every word that she said. He declared that what the Lord had shown her had been first shown to him. But said he, and now this is a quotation, I was proud. I was unreconciled to the disappointment. I murmured against God and wished myself dead. Then I felt strange, a strange feeling come over me. I shall be henceforth as one dead to spiritual things. This is what he's saying to Ellen White. I believe the visions are taken from me and given to you. Do not refuse to obey God, for it will be at the peril of your soul. I am a lost man. You are chosen of God. Be faithful in doing your work and the crown that I might have had, you will receive. This is an illustration of being important 
but not indispensable. God's plan was fulfilled. He did call the weakest of the weak, but Hazen Foss totally lost his spiritual and religious interest. Actually, when Hazen said, be faithful in doing your work and the crown I might have had, you will receive, he was actually alluding to a verse that we find in Revelation 3, 10 and 11. And I'll end with this verse. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world, to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast which thou hast, that no one take thy crown. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the way in which you have revealed your plans for our lives. I ask, Lord, that you will help us to follow the plan, that as we commune with you, we might have a clearer and clearer vision of the purpose for which you have chosen us. Lord, I ask that you will help us to remain firm, to remain faithful, even in the most difficult circumstances of life, because we know that trials are meant not to break us, but to make us. Thank you, Lord, for having been with us, for inspiring us, and filling us with your spirit that we might follow your plan perfectly. We pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.